Made Visible is a podcast that gives a voice to people with invisible illnesses. There's no blueprint about how to live with an invisible illness or how to be there for someone who has one. We're here to help people feel less alone as they strive to create a normal life and to create an awareness of how we can be supportive of people who seem fine but aren't. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Made Visible. I'm your host, Harper Spiro. We have another amazing guest on the show today. A few years ago, a good friend of mine posted an article his sister wrote about her experience with depression. Even though I didn't know her personally, I sat in my apartment sobbing while reading it. I was so proud to know her indirectly as she was so vulnerable and willing to share her story. She was still in college at the time, but her words were so powerful and I knew that they would help others who were also struggling with mental illness. I messaged her several times gushing about her writing, so it's no surprise that she was at the top of my ideal guest list when I decided to launch this podcast. I'm really excited to have the opportunity to have this conversation with her today and share it with you guys. Welcome, Mallory Godhealth. I'm thrilled to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. It's nice to finally connect I know. It's all been over Facebook Messenger for years now. (laughs) Right. It's nice to finally hear your voice. And I'm here. I feel like I only know your voice from a video on your website. Yeah. And I feel like I sound a little weird in recording sometimes. So hopefully this is a little different. All good. So why don't we start? Tell us a little bit about who you are, where you live, and what you're up to. Sure. So, um, I graduated last year from college uh, with a degree in psychology, but found that mental health advocacy was really the route I wanted to go on. I ended up in Delaware, actually, which is not my ideal place to live. And I'm currently trying to move back to Boston and continue to pursue that mental health advocacy. I am fortunate enough to have a piece in a book coming out shortly, hopefully within the next couple months. Um, And yeah, I'm just really really trying to work on my recovery full time. It's been a long eight years of trying to learn what it's like to live with a mental illness. And I finally feel like I'm at a place in my life where it's all starting to make sense. I say starting to, it's not fully making sense because it's ever changing, but it definitely feels like I'm on the right path this time. Amazing. I mean, I obviously love the work that you're doing advocacy wise and shout out to Northeastern, where we both went to college. Yes, Huskies for life. <laughs> so let's dig right into mental illness and all the stuff that you've got going on. So when were you first diagnosed with anxiety and depression? So I was diagnosed at the age of 15. And honestly, I think when I look back, there were a lot of signs in my childhood that there was something that was a little off. I think I was an anxious, very anxious child. I think I had signs of having panic attacks. But when you're at that age, you don't you don't have the language for that. And if no one else around you is dealing with a mental illness, you don't really know what that is. Like you just assume that this is something that's happening for, to you. And you kind of just keep sweeping it under the rug because you don't want to tell anybody about it because it feels weird. And again, you don't have the language for it. So I think all of it really came to, you know, its breaking point at my, I would say my sophomore year of high school or going into my sophomore year. Um, I really just felt like there's really aren't words for it. It just felt like something was off and I was slowly sinking into this hole. But I didn't want to tell my parents, not because I didn't 
trust them or thought they were going to be mad at me or whatever. But I just had such a perfectionist complex that I thought that telling this them this would be a sign of weakness. And I did not want to be seen as weak. So I hid it for several, several months. And I was struggling with self-harm and suicidal ideation. And I confided in one friend. And this one friend was great. She helped me through so much. But at one point, she said, you know, you're not safe anymore. And I can't be the only person who knows about this. And on Christmas Day, when everybody is celebrating with their family, she came over and said, you have two options here. You can either sit downstairs while I tell your parents what's going on, or you can go upstairs and tell your parents to come down and I'll tell them what's going on. And that, and I'm not leaving until one of those two things happens. Whoa. And yeah, it was very, it was very intense. And she was very adamant about making sure that I got the help that I needed. Were you um, mad at her at that point? I actually thought she was bluffing, to be honest. I was pretty snarky about it. I pretty much said to her, like, I walked upstairs with an attitude. I said, okay, whatever you say, and sent my parents down. And I sat upstairs and I was like, she's not really going to say anything. And about 15 minutes later, my parents walked upstairs, didn't say anything to me, but went to go talk to each other. And then about 15 or 20 minutes after that, I was on my way to an emergency room. Um, Again, I thought this was like, I thought it was a joke. Like I was like, this isn't happening to me. Like, it's not that bad. You guys are overreacting. Like, I really just didn't believe that this was as serious as it was, even though I felt awful. It just felt like this was not so serious. And eight hours in the emergency room, which was definitely a difficult experience when you don't know what being in a psychiatric unit of a hospital looks like. Um, I ended up in my first inpatient unit at Johns Hopkins Hospital. And that was where I received my official diagnosis of uh, uh, general anxiety and uh, major depressive disorder. How long after being admitted to the hospital did you get that diagnosis? I actually got it shortly after, which I've always struggled with. I feel like they get information from you and from your family, but I feel like that's a quick time to make a diagnosis for someone. But fortunately, or for them, or unfortunately for me, they kept me for only five days. And then I ended up back there about two weeks later. So they actually got a little more time to observe me. Um, But I think that's definitely a difficult decision for them, in my opinion, for them to make about you know, after knowing me for a few hours to just jump on a diagnosis like that. Absolutely. So what was that experience like for you, for your family? I know you have two brothers. I'm good friends with one of them. So what was that like for everybody? Obviously, you you especially. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a weird statement to make, but it's a very powerful one in that this really brought our family very, very close together. Both my brothers happened to be home that Christmas. It just happened to work out that they were both not traveling or in school or, you know, they came in that Christmas and they all got to visit me that first hospital stay. And I remember, I specifically remember when my brothers walked in and they both looked like they were going to cry. And they're my two big brothers. They're like my protectors and they're like these, I, I always consider them the tough guys because they always used to pick on me and wrestle me. So I, it was weird, not weird, that's not the word. It was powerful for them to walk in and say, 
like see their hurt. And I remember I was like, no, no, guys, it's okay. I'm okay. Like I wanted to reassure them, even Mm. though like, you know, I was the one who was dealing with it. I wanted them to know that it was going to be okay. And I think they were, they were so good to me. They came to watch Ravens games with me, which is very important to our family. They came to watch them in the hospital with me. And my parents drove down to Baltimore every day to visit me like twice a day to make sure that I, you know, I felt like I had their support. But I think it was also difficult because some of the behaviors I was displaying caused some distrust with my parents. I was self-harming and that scared both of them. And they didn't want to leave me alone. They were afraid to leave me in a room alone because they thought I was going to hurt myself. And at 15, 16 years old, you want your independence, you want your freedom. And I was having trouble seeing from their perspective at the time how scary that was to like give me my freedom. And so I was definitely very, very stubborn and very... I was a little defiant and very angry that they wouldn't give me my space, not understanding from their perspective that they were just trying to keep me safe. Yeah, I mean, that's such a huge thing because at that age, we're rebellious no matter what. We want to do things our way. We want the freedom and, you know, to do it differently than our parents want us to be doing it. But in this specific situation, they were truly concerned about you and your well-being. So it's really a challenging thing to go through as a parent, I'm sure, as your brothers and obviously for you. So what was that process like over these years since your diagnosis and those two hospital stays to navigating these conversations and what it's like to live with this when I believe you're the only one in your immediate family who's going through this, correct? Yes. So I know there's extended family that deals with it. Immediate family wise, I, I'm the one who's who I say it's the genetic lottery that I got the jackpot win for. Um, I've never won any other type of raffle in my life. So I guess if I'm going to win one, let's make it, let's make it big. Um, (laughs) But I think it's been a long journey after those two hospital stays, it actually ended up turning into an outpatient stay followed by another inpatient stay at a different hospital and then three more outpatient stays at that hospital. It has definitely been a long, long journey. And I think part of the reason it was so long is because I don't think I, at the beginning, fully invested in my recovery. I kind of just thought that this was something that I would go to the hospital and it would go away. Like I remember saying that my very first time, someone was like, oh, this is like my third time here. And I was like, I'm never coming back. Like, this is it. This is one and done. I will never come back to a place like this. I'm going to walk out of here and be fine. Again, that's just a lack of education about mental health that made me believe that this was just going to be this. This was going to be it. I was going to be fine. It sounds like you were sort of treating it like it was the flu or a cold and you go to the hospital or you go to the doctor get some treatment or medication and okay, all good, moving on. Absolutely. That's exactly how I thought of it. And so I was, and maybe it was partly that I thought of it and part, part of it was very hopeful um, that because I was feeling better in the hospital a bit because there's a lot less stress going on in there. I wasn't having to deal with it at school and hide it from my parents. Like I think there was some relief that was going on that triggered this feeling of, you know, I'm getting better. 
but it doesn't happen that quickly. And so I had to go through so many more steps and I had to learn that I, you know, I was on medication at the time and I had to go to therapy and there were so many things that I had to do for my, for my health. And I just wasn't fully at the time. I think that's an age where I was just not mature enough yet to say to myself, like, you have to fully invest in your recovery. And that's how you're going to get better. I just hope that I could kind of coast through that and end up on the other side where I wanted to be back to my normal self. But clearly you recognized over time that normal self was a new term here, a new version of you. And so at what point did you identify as being in recovery or ready to accept that there was a road to recovery? It was, it wasn't until I would say my sophomore year of college that I truly felt like I was on my road to recovery. Um, I was really, really struggling in the winter of my sophomore year. And as you know, Boston winters are very bleak, which does not do much for your mental health. And um, I had a situation where I was sexually harassed on a street in Boston. And there were just my, I just felt like I wasn't connecting. And my depression started to slowly creep in again. My anxiety was at an all-time high because I wouldn't want to walk outside anymore after that encounter on the street. And I just was isolating and isolating. And eventually my parents noticed that something was off. So they flew me home to see my psychiatrist at home. Um, And she suggested I go into an inpatient unit at home. But I refused to take a medical leave from school. There was just something about that that I it just, it threw me off. It made me feel like I was a quitter or failure. And I ended up flying back to school after that weekend. And one day later, I brought myself to an emergency room. And that was probably the moment that I knew that this was when I was going to invest in my recovery. For the first time, it wasn't my parents walking me, almost forcing me to an emergency room saying, you need to get help. For the first time, it was me saying, okay, Mallory, you need to go get help right now. Like you're in a very bad place. And I walked into MGH. I said the words that, you know, cause a lot of mayhem in a hospital. I said I was suicidal. Um, And I managed to not be put into an inpatient unit, but I did request to be put in an outpatient unit. I thought it would be really helpful if I was in group therapy. I've always found that groups were really powerful for me because I felt like I finally had people that understood and that I could connect with. And so in that hospital stay at that outpatient unit, that's when I realized this is, this is the time that I need to really invest in my recovery. And that was my turning point for sure. Wow. Well, you know, it's so interesting because I think about my own health and other people that I've interviewed for the podcast or plan to. And I think what's so unique or not even unique, is there comes a time in your life where you have to recognize yourself that your health and your life has to be your priority. And it's on you to make that decision. There can be people that influence you and make recommendations. But I've seen so many people who choose not to live a healthy life And they deal with different repercussions. And, you know, you can have your parents say, like, you've got to take care of yourself, but you've got to have that in you to genuinely want to do it. And I really relate to that. I mean, when I was, you know, a preteen and teenager, 
my mom would make recommendations and I would see different doctors and specialists about my health, but I wasn't really invested in it. And I think when I went through a real life altering situation in 2012, it was like, oh, okay, now I need to prioritize this. But no one else could pave that path for me. I had to make that decision on my own. And it sounds like you did too. Yeah. And I think I think one of the things that people sometimes don't understand is we don't choose the hand we're dealt. We don't choose the illness that we deal with. That's That part's not a choice. But the recovery piece, you can choose to live your life however you wish. And so for me, I had to choose my recovery. That part for me felt like a choice. Like I can't choose whether my depression is going to hit me tomorrow or in 10 days or in 10 years, but I can choose how I treat myself today and tomorrow and how I'm going to invest in my recovery. That part to me, and I like that because everything else feels out of control in my life in that regard. This is the piece, this is the part I have control over. And that's really important, especially with, you know, something so unpredictable when you never know when you're going to have a bad day next. Absolutely. So when you say that you made that choice to take that road to recovery, what has that process been like for you? So when I took my medical leave of absence from school after being in treatment at the outpatient facility Arbor in Boston, I decided that I wanted to kind of give back in a way that felt meaningful to my illness. So I ended up at uh, Shepherd Pratt Hospital where I was um, at one point. And I didn't work in the unit that I was on. I was on the geriatric unit, but there was a woman in the outpatient facility. Her name was Miss Doreen. And I, as I said, I was stubborn in treatment and she really broke me down. Like she was tough and she kept putting me in her group. I hope she would put me in a different group, but she didn't. She, it, whether it was she believed in me or she really thought she was going to make a breakthrough, she kept putting me in her group and really fighting back against, you know, my, my kind of defiant nature. And she really did play a big role in my recovery. So after my shift in the geriatric unit, I went down to thank her and show her how far I had come and that I was in college and I was pursuing a degree in psychology. And when I went down to thank her, which was a very emotional experience, she said to me, how would you feel about speaking to the patients here? You've been in their shoes. You've literally sat in the same seats they've, they're sitting in now. And without hesitation, I said yes, because again, I was so, I was so um, intent on living as myself fully. And so I got to walk in and speak to these patients who were slightly younger than myself and probably in the same stage I was when I was stubborn and defiant. And that, that right there was me living my most authentic self. I felt like I expressed who I was to them and what this struggle has meant to me and how it shaped me and how how worth it life felt in that moment and how their lives were worth it. And I remember I left and it was pouring down rain and I got in my car and I turned on my music and I just sat there like grinning ear to ear because I finally felt like I found something worthwhile in my illness. I was like, this is this is the reason, if I have to pick a reason why I was dealt this hand, this one is it right here. I'm going to take this and give back to other people. I can be a voice for other people. And it felt so genuine and so authentic. And I 
despite the pouring down rain, just smiled all the way home. Like I felt like I was like, like on a, like a runner's high for like three to four days afterwards. That, that was for me, the first step in figuring out my road to recovery was giving my illness purpose. Wow. I have a huge smile on my face. It really is just incredible to hear that you had that moment and she provided you with that platform to be able to share your story. First of all, I need to know what song you were listening to. Do you remember? Ooh, I'm trying to think. I think it was, and this is going to sound funny, Beautiful by Christina Aguilera. Okay. It was one of my favorite songs growing up, and it was a song I listened to constantly when I was at the beginning of my, like when I first started to feel really depressed because it was it was such a positive song and I needed something positive in my life. And for me, that felt like a full circle song where I finally felt like it was in a better space and the words really rang true for me. I love that. I love that so much. So clearly that sounds like this was the beginning of your advocacy work. So what made you want to take on a bigger role in advocacy for mental health from there? And where did that go for you? I ended up speaking with my therapist about how powerful that experience was speaking at the hospital. And I said, like, where else do I do this? Like, can I do this as, you know, as a career or a job or part time? Like, I I felt like it I was so passionate about doing it, but I didn't know where to go from there. And she she gave me a few suggestions, but it wasn't until I actually returned to school and joined the Active Minds chapter at Northeastern that I got my second opportunity. I was a part of that in a different club. And those what meetings- What is Active Minds? I've heard of it, but I want to make sure that our listeners know what it is. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, um, it's they fight mental health stigma on college campuses. So it is very specific to college students. They do a lot of interesting events like Send Silence Packing, where they actually put backpacks out of the number of people who have uh, died by suicide every year. And it's just a very powerful event because um, they were could have been your peers or your friends or something like that. And they do a lot of advocacy work, a lot of legislation work. They are a very wonderful organization. And I was proud to be part of it in school. That's awesome. That's yeah. really cool. So, okay, so continue on about advocacy and where that sort of led you and where you're at now profession wise. Yeah. So when I, when I was in these two clubs, their meetings coincided. And so I often missed my active minds meeting to go to another meeting. And I finally, that meeting got canceled and I decided, okay, well tonight I'll go to active minds. And they were actually talking about at that particular meeting, this event they were going to put on called break the silence. And they were looking for more students to speak and share their stories. And I sat around for a little bit and I was like, should I do it? Should I do it? And finally, I went up at the end of the meeting to the guy in charge of it. And I said, I'd be willing to share my story. And we sat down for coffee a few days later. And I told him my story and I told him my message, which at that point, I had gotten a tattoo. Uh, I kind of co-opted it from Perks of Being a Wallflower um, yeah. And it, it's, and it says in, and in that moment, I felt infinite. And that was a nod to my recovery in that moment when I chose to invest in my recovery and invest in myself, I felt infinite. And so I tried to, you know, really impart that message in when I was speaking with him 
And he looked at me and he said, you're going to close out the night. I want that to be the last message everyone hears. And I was so excited. And I was like, okay, now I have to prepare a speech. And I couldn't think of a single word to say. I had no words to put on paper. I knew things I wanted to say, but every time I sat down to write it, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. And I was so stressed and I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. The day of the event comes, I still have no idea what I'm going to do. It's about the one speaker before me. I have a friend look at me and say, do you know what you're going to say? And I was like, nope, no idea. And she goes, oh, good luck because you're going on now. And so I walked onto the stage and I sat down and for about 10 minutes, I just, I just spoke from my heart. And I know it probably wasn't as coherent now looking back as I wanted it to be, but it, it felt right. I can't even like remember what I said. I would have to look back and watch the speech again to remember. I just remember how I felt. And I felt, again, like I said, there's something about speaking that feels really genuine and authentic and and life-giving for me. And so I took that speech and I sat around saying, okay, should I share this to my social media? Because that was going to be the first step outside of my little bubbles that knew about my illness or saw me speak. This was going to be the first step to bringing it to a bigger platform. And I sat around for a while wondering, is this, is this going to be okay? Are people going to judge me? How are people going to react? And then eventually I was like, you know what? If putting this out there helps one person, then it's going to be worth it. If one person sees it and says, I want to get help or I feel less alone, then it would have felt worth it to me. So I hit post on my Facebook and within a few hours, I was receiving messages left and right from people I knew, you know, throughout my life, but didn't know their struggle. And they were telling me about their struggle and about what they were going through and thanking me for putting something out there so they didn't feel so alone. And that to me, it's not a it's never going to be about attention or you know accolades or anything like that. It's about those messages that I get from people who say I feel less alone and I want to tell you about my story. That to me is the most beautiful thing about what I do. And in once I shared it and received such positive feedback that people wanted to know not just about my story but wanted to know that there were other people out there struggling that that to me then i was hooked and from there that's when i really started pursuing writing and uh, beginning my own website and sharing more speeches that i that i did and that's what really launched it was that sharing that first thing to facebook well it's got to be so terrifying i mean i remember doing it about my health as well sharing for the first time you have no idea how people are going to respond are you going to be ripped to shreds or are people going to relate? And luckily in your situation, people did relate. But I think the challenge is that many people who have invisible or chronic illnesses, they don't want to be defined by their health. And that's why they often don't speak up. But it's clear that in your case, you've made your illness a important part of your identity and who you are. So I think that's so incredible because it's certainly helping other people and making people recognize that by sharing their experiences, they are not alone. Other people are going through this. So as you said, you've been very public about your illness and now you've written a lot. You have this amazing website with content and all that. Have there been any reservations 
since that first post about speaking or writing about your illness? Definitely on certain topics. I would say I've had a little bit more trouble opening up about those. I think depression and anxiety, for the most part, there's still a lot of stigma around it and people still think you should just pick yourself up by your bootstraps. But I think those two illnesses are are have been brought more to the public eye and are considered more normal, if for lack of a better word. Um, but there's definitely things that I struggle with that they aren't seen as more as one of the more glamorous mental illnesses, I guess, or glamorous struggles. Again, that's like, that's not the word I would love to use, but that's kind of how people see it. So I struggle with self-harm, which is something that I think a lot of people are afraid of. They think it's attention seeking. They think it's scary. Um, but it was, for me, it was so much a way to externalize this internal pain. It was a sense of control over an illness I felt I had no control over. And it was a coping mechanism, just like someone might turn to drugs or alcohol. It's it's along those same lines. It was a way for me to cope in, in something that I really was having trouble coping with. And at the beginning, I really struggled to share um, about my self-harm. I've opened up about it more in a piece that I wrote about that. I've shared about my uh, journey to becoming what I call clean. Uh, so I have officially not self-harmed for over a year now, which has been a big accomplishment because oftentimes I would go a couple months without doing it and then relapse. So that was definitely a topic that I think was difficult to share, as well as I have OCD tendencies, which I haven't talked about a lot in anything. I may have one piece about it that's very, very short. Um, again, OCD is something that a lot of people don't really understand. And it's not something that people can really, I want to say, like empathize with. Like people know what it feels like to feel sad or stressed or anxious to an extent. Um, maybe not to the extent that someone with depression or anxiety feels. Right. But people don't know what it feels like to feel OCD to an extent. So I think that one's been more difficult to talk about because it felt embarrassing. It's like no one's going to understand why I feel the need to wash my hands after I do X, Y, and Z and how I need to wash my hands. Like those were things that felt like, okay, people aren't going to get that. I want to kind of shy away from that topic because it's less easy to understand and empathize with. So those are the two big ones that I've definitely been a little less vocal about. Yeah, understandable. And and it's and it's your life and it's your story. So you have the ability to determine what you share and curate it in a certain way. But I think what I've learned in reading a lot of what you've written over the years is that you're not trying to make this look glamorous because it's not. You're trying to show exactly what it is and how it goes and raise the awareness for people to better understand. When you were in college and even now, you know, figuring out your career path and what happens next in your life, how do you communicate what you're dealing with with your friends and how often are you telling people what you're going through? Is it public knowledge at this point or what does that look like? So most of my friends, I've come to the point in my life and I feel like I sound really old when I say that. I've just come to the point where I keep people around me who understand me and who aren't going to sit around and judge what I'm going through. 
I just have people who understand and who love me regardless. That's not to say all of my friends are people I go to to talk about it because they'll understand to an extent and they'll be there and they'll listen. But a lot of them, again, you don't always have the knowledge to know what to do or say in that moment. So I have a few people that are really my go-tos. Obviously, I still see a therapist and receive professional help. But on a day-to-day basis, I have maybe two or three friends I confide in about my illness regularly when I'm struggling. And my boyfriend, who I live with, has really gotten quite a good look at what it's like to live with someone who has a mental illness um, and what that's like day to day. So he's someone I definitely confide in. I've noticed your posts over the years about your boyfriend and sort of being grateful for him for sticking around. Yeah, he is. I, I There's no two ways around it. He is really a saint. I mean, we did long distance for a lot of years and when you know when i'm struggling it's it's really difficult to communicate with me and i shut i'm quick to shut down and i'm quick to push him away and you know as a college age young man you expect that they're just going to you know be like okay this isn't worth it anymore like we're in a long distance relationship this is a lot of work it was very easy for him to just walk away from me but he stuck by me like relentlessly, like even when I said like, you should just go like, this isn't worth it for you. He's like, I'm not going anywhere. And I think that to me, I don't know if I could have a partner who didn't understand it. Like, it's not like he can understand fully what I'm going through, but who didn't understand enough to really push me and say, I'm going to be here and you're, you're gonna, we're going to get through this together that's become such an important part of our relationship. And now that we're living together, I've had two short episodes and he got to see what it was like to live with that firsthand. And he, I mean, he handled it so well. He looks up things to do when I have a panic attack. He's, I've caught him like reading like stuff about depression and what's a good way to communicate with someone who's going through depression and He'll even text my mom so she's in the loop because I know that she worries when I don't, you know, answer her texts or calls when I'm in that state. So he's become such an important piece of my recovery. And I have no words. I can't thank him enough for sticking around. He has quite the job in, you know, taking this on because he didn't have to. He had a choice. He could have walked away and he chose to stay. And that means everything to me for all the people in my life who had the opportunity to walk away, but chose to stay. Those are people that I I cannot thank enough. Like even my best friend, uh, she's wonderful. She, regardless of how many miles are between us, I mean, she sticks by me. And those are, those are the people who I, you know, I'm so grateful for every day. That's incredible. I mean, I think part of it is due to who you are as a human being, you are not allowing yourself to be defined by your illness and yet it's part of your identity, but you're doing work to recover and get through this, as well as the advocacy work that you're not in bed and all day, you know, a miserable wreck. You're living your life and trying to show the different sides of mental illness. So I think that that certainly is inspiring and I'm sure makes them feel like, you know, she wants to keep moving forward in this life and we're here to support her. 
And there are some days, I will not lie, there are some days where I am just going to lay in my bed. But I think that I think what you said is so great is that there are so many different sides to me as a person. There are so many different sides to mental illness. And there isn't just one look of it. And that's why I, I want to kind of show all different versions of myself. Like I'm not afraid to show the days when I'm, you know, in bed crying and I can't get up. But I'm also, I'm not just that person. I'm also a person who dances around her apartment with music and no one's there and it's looks crazy and looks fun. And like, that's also me. So I feel like that's definitely how I want to represent myself is not just one type of person. I have a lot of different, a lot of different aspects of myself. And I think that's important because I think when you have a mental illness, you kind of get pigeonholed into this one way you should act or be or look like or sound like. And there's, it's just not the case. We're all humans that still have a lot of different things going on in our lives. And we shouldn't be defined by this one aspect of ourselves. Absolutely. So what would your advice be to someone who has a friend or family member or, you know, a new relationship who has recently been diagnosed with depression or someone coming out about their depression? I think when it comes to a relationship with someone, no matter what kind of relationship, like you said, like a friend or family member um, or a partner, I think it's really important to communicate. I think that's one of the hardest things to do when you're struggling with an illness like that. And to be persistent about keeping communication lines open is so important. I think when you both understand what page you're on, and how to get from point A to point B in your recovery, I think it makes it a lot easier. I know that when I was at the beginning of this whole journey, I wouldn't communicate with my parents, and they didn't know how to help me when I didn't communicate. And then I would get frustrated that they didn't know how to help me and what I wanted, but they're not mind readers. So I think keeping an open line of communication is so, so important for maintaining relationships, as difficult as it might be when you're struggling to communicate, even if you just do little things to show, you know, this is what I need, this is what I'm looking for, then people can actually give you the help that you want. And it makes it a lot easier. And as for someone who's opening up about their story for the first time, one of the biggest things I'll say is that do it at your own pace. You know, this is your journey. This is your narrative. You get to define it. And that's so, so beautiful. But, you know, do it as you see fit. You don't have to share everything. You can share parts of it and pieces of it. Do what makes you feel comfortable because at the end of the day, you know, you're, you're getting to write your own story. So don't, don't feel the need to write it a certain way. Do it in a way that feels genuine to you. I love that so much. I think that's such a great piece of advice to leave on, honestly, because I think it's something that everyone can relate to no matter what you're going through to really do things on your own terms and not feel forced or pressured to do it a way that someone else wants. But again, you had this woman in the hospital who opened this door for you and let you in and said, okay, I think that you should be sharing this and look at what's come of that since then. Really powerful. So tell us, Mallory, where can people find you, read some of these amazing pieces that you've written that have made me cry, but also feel so good to know that you're out there and supporting people and where people can follow along with your journey. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the Infinite Project dash Mallory's Fight, it's kind of a long name, but that's my website where you can find a lot of my blog pieces and content. 
Also, my social media is up on there or any of my handles are at Mallory's Fight. Um, I'm hoping to continue to put out some new pieces in the future. And hopefully my book comes out or the book that I'm featured in comes out soon. So hopefully I can share a little bit more in depth about how my college experience was living with a mental illness. And, you know, I just look forward to keep speaking and connecting with others who are going through this. This has been the coolest journey for me to, you know, when I think about so many years ago sitting in that hospital and now I'm sitting here speaking with you and it is it feels so incredible to be at this point in my life right now. And that's the hope that hopefully others can feel and follow along with on my journey as well. I love it so much. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me and for being so open about your story. Hopefully it will help some others. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor. Thanks for tuning into Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. We can't do this without your support. Visit madevisiblepodcast.com. Follow Made Visible Podcast on Instagram. Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor. Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer. Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music. And Krista Gray for the logo and design concepts.